0: Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We are continuing to examine some of the results from the August primary elections here on the show. And today, my guest is the winner of one of this year's most watched state senate primaries in New York City. Kristen Gonzalez won the Democratic primary in the new 59th state senate district and won by a fairly wide margin over second place finisher Elizabeth Crowley, the former city council member from Queens, the new district, a product of the messy and chaotic redistricting process that we've discussed many times here on the show that unfolded this year and led to the bifurcated June and August primaries with the assembly and statewide races in June. And then the state Senate and U S house races in August, this new district covers a large stretch of Western Queens and Western Brooklyn, and a slice of Manhattan's east side. Yes, a tri-borough district. It runs from Astoria to Long Island City to Greenpoint, Williamsburg. In Manhattan, it includes Stuyvesant Town, Gramercy, Kips Bay, Murray Hill, a very interesting district that we're gonna talk with Kristen Gonzalez about the challenges of running in and then representing. She won the Democratic primary with about 58% of the vote, a very strong showing, as I said, We'll get her perspective on that, the top issue she ran on, her electoral strategy. She does not have a challenger in the general election, so she is headed to the state legislature in January. The campaign was buoyed by the Democratic Socialists of America, New York City, which Kristen Gonzalez is a member of. And given that she's headed to the legislature in January, she will add to the DSA caucus there, which includes several other state senators and assembly members, many of whom represent portions of what is now becoming this socialist beltway of Queens and Brooklyn, including state senators Jabari Brisport and Julia Salazar, who've both been on the show before, assembly members Zoran Mamdani, Emily Gallagher, and others. Uh, The DSA, of course, also now boasts Tiffany Caban in the city council, and of course, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria ocasio Cortez in the House. Uh, They both represent parts of the new district here uh, that will be represented by Kristen Gonzalez in the state Senate. Before I bring Kristen Gonzalez on, if you've missed any other recent episodes of the show, I've had some great conversations with excellent guests, recent discussions, including with Maragay of the New York Times editorial board, Dennis Walcott, the chair of the redistricting committee that's drawing new city council district lines for the elections that will be happening next year for city council seats, and State Senator Gustavo Rivera, who just won his own very tough fought Democratic primary by a very narrow margin, uh, had a really good long talk with State Senator Rivera, who just came through that tough primary about what happened there in the Bronx. Uh, those are some highlights of recent conversations. And of course, a lot more in our reporting at GothamGazette.com. Check out our recent articles on city and state politics there. Okay, Kristen Gonzalez has just won a hard fought. Democratic primary and state Senate District 59, parts of Queens, parts of Brooklyn, a little bit of Manhattan. She's headed to the state legislature in January. She's a tech worker, as I said, a Democratic socialist, a community organizer who lives in Long Island City. She's from a Puerto Rican-Colombian family and grew up in Elmhurst, Queens. She's worked in government and community organizing. She's worked on the 2020 census through her community board and more. Kristen, thank you for being here. How are you?
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me, Ben. Definitely a fan of you, your work, and the podcast. And it feels really great to be here.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I understand that since your primary win, you're already back to work full-time. Is that right?
1: (laughs) Yes, I actually Went back to work full time uh, the same week as the primary. I took a uh, leave of absence from work, and you know, as most New Yorkers have rent to pay, bills piling up. So we're right back at work, um, and definitely, you know, on my free time, I'm still really involved in the community. And between now and and the general, we're going to keep on organizing around the issues that we ran on in this campaign.
0: So why don't you talk a little bit about those issues? What did you put at the forefront of this race uh, as you were running here in this new state Senate district? Uh, the terrain was shifting as the district lines were being drawn and redrawn and court orders and all of this. You had a a, a fairly truncated final stretch to run in, in the new district. Um, but what did you put at the forefront of this campaign?
1: Yeah, so, you know, we put working families front and center. And as someone who grew up in a working class and immigrant family as well, you know, fighting for families like my own was really the motivation for running for office, for getting involved in public service. I spent, you know, a lot of my career working at different levels of government and from working in DC to working in city council to serving on my community board, I've seen so many career politicians that have been bought out by special interests that don't really serve working families or don't have our best interests at heart. So in running this campaign, we talked a lot about what it meant to have a dignified life for working families in New York. And that meant for us a variety of different issues, primarily housing as a human right. We talked a lot about what deeply and truly affordable housing looks like in New York City, especially in a district that is rapidly gentrifying and rapidly developing. We also talked about what it means to secure our future. So having a green New York and really taking action on climate, you know, we had so many, we we lost many neighbors during Ida, especially in Queens and so many parts of the district from Queens to Brooklyn. And of course, you know, the waterfront parts in Manhattan are at risk of flooding. So we wanted to ensure that a dignified life for working families means not only a roof over our heads, food on the table, but a future that is safe, um, a future that is securing um, and protecting us from the climate crises that are drawing near. And we also talked a lot about other basic dignities, you know, universal healthcare, deep investment in our education, um, tuition-free CUNY and SUNY, and, and so much more.
0: Mm-hmm. Um- this came up a little bit during the campaign and since you are back to work say a little bit about the work that you do in your you know what your job is and how you think about being part of um the the tech ecosystem and running on your platform and and you know the policies that you support.
1: Yeah, so right now I am a product manager um, for user experience, which essentially means for the company that I work for, we have a large big data platform and I'm in charge of the look and feel of it. It means colors and buttons and working with, you know, designers who design those elements um, in order to create the best experience possible. But really what that job comes down to is listening to our users and incorporating their feedback, understanding what their experience is, what the pain points are and how we can make our data platform better. And I got into tech after working in DC, actually, I was there, you know, I worked in the Obama White House, and I worked in Senator Schumer's office. And after returning from DC, um, you know, once Trump Trump was inaugurated, decided to do a bit of a career change. And going into tech was the impetus for me to start working with the Democratic Socialists of America. So actually, for two years, I served on the organizing committee of uh, the Democratic Socialists um, of New York's Tech Action Working Group. And during that time, I focused on data privacy for New Yorkers. So I organized against uh, Lincoln YC kiosks. And I also started uh, working on mutual aid efforts and supporting the first community owned community led resource library and building a website for, for mutual aid groups that consolidated those resources. And then finally, you know, in 2021, we actually launched a public citywide public internet initiative, where we demanded having, you know, internet be, um, a public utility so that we're not at the whim of large um, monopolies like Spectrum and Verizon, where we're paying premiums right in New York city compared to the rest of the country, but getting subpar service, which we really felt during the pandemic. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, the company you work for is American Express still, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. I work on the tech side of American. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And is there, is there other, other things related to, um, big business, tech, internet access that you are going to be looking to work on when you get to Albany? Are there specific bills that you either want to introduce or that you'll support and try to get over the finish line? You know, anything from your personal work experience here that 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 sort of motivates you uh, in those areas? Or um, is it some of the other priorities that we've talked about that you're more focused on?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think that we need more Um, representatives that are technologically um, savvy, right? We need folks who are going to bring that perspective into government. One thing that's important to me is looking at how we can redesign government services and websites so that they are more user-friendly, similar to what I do for my my day job. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our services are hidden behind really difficult-to-use and not-accessible Interfaces. So essentially, you know, if we're accessing benefits or just trying to figure out how to navigate different state agencies, even, um, it's hidden behind, you know, very outdated websites. And I think there's a lot we can do to make government more accessible and also easier to navigate simply by looking at. You know, looking at our our different portals and a lot of the front end of what these services look like for day to day New Yorkers or everyday New Yorkers. Um, So, I think some of the oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I think, you know, in addition to that, I would really I have been supportive in the past of, um, you know, the surveillance technology oversight um, project and, um, you know, the suite of privacy bills that we have up in Albany. So I'll definitely be championing privacy and ensuring that we are giving, you know, quality Internet and broadband and also fighting for it as a right for New Yorkers. So definitely still, of course, you know, many priorities, but these are. These are a few ways where I feel like we can bring some new energy to Albany around tax.
0: So thank you for that. So, so let's, um, and maybe we'll come back to a little more later, but let's get back to the race that you won. Um, state Senate districts have to be roughly the same size in terms of population, but you had to run in a tri borough district that I described stretching from Queens to Brooklyn and into Manhattan a little bit, um, were there particular challenges that? I mean, I know this is your first time running for office, so you don't have a lot to compare it to. But um, were there particular challenges to running in this district, the way it's drawn? Um, do you, you know, do you have any sort of reflections on how the the actual ground game of this district went in terms of trying to reach? All the different pockets of the district. Um, how, how did that go? And, and how? What do you attribute your success here to, in terms of, um, you know, your field strategy, your get-out-the-vote efforts? You know, really being on the ground in this new district that also stretches three boroughs.
1: So I, you know, you summarized this a little in the beginning, we had an exceptional cycle because of redistricting. We started by launching it in February when the brand new state Senate seat District 17 was created. And that district included Long Island City, Greenpoint, and then went down through Ridgewood into parts of, you know, Southeast Queens. You had Richmond Hill, Ozone Park, Woodhaven, Glendale, Maspeth. and, Long Island City and Greenpoint were two of the densest neighborhoods. So when those lines were overturned, um, the district was redrawn into Senate District 59, which was a new seat that included Long Island City and Greenpoint, but extended up to Astoria, down to Williamsburg, and then into Manhattan. So about two months before our primary, we were lucky that we weren't starting from scratch because as someone who lives in Long Island City, and also as someone who had been organizing there and having run in District 17, we still had knocked you know, over eight thousand doors in that in the cur- in the current districts at fifty nine, right? Mm-hmm. But we all of a sudden had to account for losing the doors in the other parts of the Senate District Seventeen, and then now starting to door knock in the new neighborhoods that were added in fifty nine. You know, especially in Manhattan, because for the first time ever, we had a tri-borough district. And I say, and I, you know, some of the biggest challenges, you know, for us. Was of course, you know, shifting quickly, right? Making sure that we are redesigning our field strategy and sending volunteers to new turf. But for as a as a lifelong strap hanger, it's transportation. I think for personally, one of the biggest challenges was actually commuting across three boroughs and splitting my time. So I saw firsthand how our transit system definitely needs to be more interconnected and improved. Um, but even with all of those challenges, we were really lucky to have the, you know, we had over 900 volunteers on this campaign. We are running a truly grassroots campaign where we were funded by over 3000 individual donors with an average donation of $46. And, um, and the, you know, volunteers from assembly races, like uh, Ayafa Sutter Soupox, who ran in, in lower Manhattan as a democratic socialist candidate as well. So we had the volunteers, we had the grassroots support. And that led us to knocking, you know, over 68,000 doors in 59 by the end of the, the race.
0: And when you um, are, when you look at this this district and you look at um, the success, as I was getting at in the intro, of so many Democratic socialists in some of these areas of Queens and Brooklyn that that you've now run in and are have been successful in this primary and all but certain to head to the state legislature here in January, um, what is it? What is it about the the residents and the voters in these areas that has um, you know, has this feel of, uh, of, of being uh, drawn and being a hotbed to democratic socialist ideals and this movement that has been growing uh, in in a number of parts of the city, but especially this stretch. What is, what does that look like on the ground? Who, you know, who is making up um, this, you know, this very significant number of people living in these areas that are um, drawn to this message, part of this, you know, part of these efforts to knock on doors and get out the vote. Describe a little bit uh, of what you're seeing, you know, and sort of the demographics of the people involved in the movement or, or who it appeals to.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we were really fortunate that Senate district 59 overlaps with five, current democratic socialists elected. So we overlap with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, assembly members Ron Ramjani, assembly member Emily Gallagher, state senator Julia Salazar, and city council member Tiffany Caban. So this was our democratic socialist stronghold. And the demographics, you know, in, in Queens, and in Brooklyn, you have working class, immigrant neighborhoods, an incredible amount of diversity. But you also have, of course, areas that are being, as I as I mentioned before, especially when it comes to housing, rapidly gentrified. The rents are rising. People are really feeling the pressures of the rising cost of living in New York City. And, and I spoke to so many folks who I knocked on their doors who honestly were not sure if they could uh, renew their lease because either their landlord was hiking up the price or it was just simply out of their range and were looking to move. So the demographic, you know, we are looking at a lot of working class New Yorkers. You do have a lot of young folks, especially in Brooklyn, like parts of Greenpoint and Williamsburg um, and, you know, immigrant communities. But we also had our, like I mentioned, Democratic Socialist Stronghold that really have voted for socialists before, are excited about our priorities because we know that when we build power, right, and when we're running a campaign like this, what we're really doing is just activating those same volunteers, um, the same base, and folks who really know what it means, right, to Build a multiracial working class movement. What was new for us and what's really exciting is Manhattan. We've never had a democratic socialist elected in Manhattan. And the parts of our district were, um, you know, you mentioned before, but, you know, Town, Waterside, Pitts Bay, Murray Hill, Gramercy, a lot of areas that were even difficult to knock at times, right? You have buildings that have doormen, um, you know, high rises. So for for us, our, our field strategy was devoted to a lot of phone banking. We knocked as many as many doors as we could, and what was exciting there was the fact that our messaging around our democratic socialist values, especially around housing and climate, really resonated. For example, in town we ha- and Waterside, we have some of the largest uh, numbers of rent stabilized units in the entire. Uh, city. And those, um, you know, communities have been fighting back for years against large corporate developers like Blackstone and Brookfield that have been trying to destabilize those units, but also hike up market rent, market unit prices. So you, you know, when we talked about housing and we talked about housing as a human right, and we talked about pushing back on these large corporate landlords, those democratic socialist principles really resonated. And we actually won in Skytown and Waterside. And we actually came within, you know, we split the vote in Manhattan, especially mm-hmm. in, for our first time running there. What's exciting and what we proved is that our values matter to working New Yorkers and they do resonate across the boroughs. Mm-hmm.
0: Say, say a little bit more. It's, it's very interesting. And and I was noting that about, um, you know, your campaign doing well in Stuyvesant Town. Uh, and as you said, sort of the Manhattan portion of the district was just about split between yourself and Elizabeth Crowley. Uh, I think she slightly, slightly won the Manhattan portion. But, um, but uh, going back to the sort of question about um, gentrification, you know, we've seen, obviously, uh, sort of coinciding uh, the the gentrification of of a lot of parts of this district uh, in Queens and Brooklyn, but also so many people who have been gentrifying those areas are part of the Democratic Socialists. And then when you talk about the tensions of gentrification, often that gets at issues around housing, housing stability, housing affordability, housing development Um, merge those themes for us in terms of how you, uh, have been thinking about, um, the challenges of gentrification, the challenges of housing affordability, uh, and questions around development. There's this, um, you know, something of a split that we're seeing among Democrats, especially even Democrats on the left around approach to, uh, questions around embracing, a lot more housing development uh because you know data data shows that New York City has just simply been way behind on producing more housing of all types obviously people on the left with a special focus on affordability and affordable housing but how do you merge all that especially when um you know you get sort of this pushback that the democratic socialists there's a lot of gentrifiers in that group how how do you think about that and how do you talk about that during the campaign, because I'm sure you heard some of that pushback on the trail.
1: Um, you know, I actually didn't experience that as much. Mm-hmm. I am myself a born and raised New Yorker. And I think, you know, uh, DSA being ca- characterized as a lot of gentrifiers is a mischaracterization and kind of erases a lot of the born and bred New Yorkers like myself that are, have been part of the movement. And I think even beyond that, you know, not only have we been building with lifelong organizers in New York City, but we've been at the forefront of the housing movement. We talk about uh, gentrification and um, affordable housing. Immediately, you know, the bill that comes to mind is one of the first pieces of uh, or one of the most important pieces of universal rent control um, legislation in Albany right now is good cause eviction, a bill that was authored and, uh, you know, sponsored by Senator Julia Salazar. Um, you think about the um, work we've done to organize against Amazon, for example, in Long Island City to ensure that we're not letting large companies come into our communities and also continue to d- displace working class black, black and brown New Yorkers. And then you also think about, and this happened during our campaign in Astoria, we had Innovation Queens, which was a um, proposal that it was, you know, wanted to build. Luxury apartments, about 2,800 units. And with, you know, taking the 421A program, only a very small portion of those being affordable, but most being, you know, $3,000 studios that for a community that is 70% renters and 80% rent burdened, uh, un- unacceptable and unaffordable, unattainable. So we organized against that as well. We were hand in hand uh, with. Other Astoria um, organizations, like Astoria Not for Sale, and ultimately the community board voted against it, um, as did the borough president. Mm-hmm. So we have been doing the work to push back on, you know, luxury developments, displacement, gentrification in these neighborhoods. And I'm I'm really proud of our current Democratic Socialist electeds that have been leading the way on universal rent control bills.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, say a little bit more. I, well, I do want to I do want to make sure it's very clear. You know, I I, I was. Uh, trying to be very careful in how I phrase that because I, I didn't at all characterize, you know, all of DSA by any means as as gentrifiers, and I I, I wouldn't characterize right, right. I I've yeah, I,
1: I definitely yeah. from yeah. I've heard that critique be been you know be used, and I just wanted to kind of you know uh, as a born and bred New Yorker and as a sure. DSA member <laughs> bring the perspective of you know yeah sure no
0: I get it and and I and I also you know I think it's very it's very you know it's it's a it's a very challenging set of issues because there are uh you know people people need places to live right people need uh, right. apartments and and you know people move for their own individual reasons and people find places that are uh affordable for them or almost affordable for them or we have people you know tripling up in uh, a one-bedroom wow. apartment and all these types of things that i'm sure you know you've seen plenty of a lot of that happens at at town uh to <laughs> to be clear um you know it, it's happening all over the place um and so it gets at these challenging issues that you're getting at about rent increases and stability and then right. you know one, one thing i'm curious about and and this sort of came up um well this has come up a lot but this came up you know a good bit in the 10th congressional district primary that just happened and in plenty of other places where there's real questions about sort of what the, the vision on the left and, and especially here, you know, we could say, you know, the, the, the far left, uh, however you want to characterize it, but about, okay, you put those rent protections in place. Let's say you pass good cause eviction that doesn't necessarily do anything about the other side of the equation, which is the housing supply. Is there a, is there Mm -hmm. a DSA, um -hmm. in or a vision in your campaign about how to increase the supply of housing while as you say you know continuing to prioritize not luxury housing but is is you know is that part of the the vision there how do you how do you do that
1: yeah so you know um i think of course good cause eviction is not a silver bullet there is no silver bullet for you know um a housing crisis. It's, it takes a lot of different approaches um, in order to ensure that we are achieving the vision of housing as a human right. But go, For folks who may be less familiar with good cause eviction, we have right now 1.6 million New Yorkers at risk of eviction. We have 92,000 current homeless New Yorkers. And um, what this bill does is give New Yorkers the right to renew their lease and a chance to staying in their homes. So it would cap uh, increases at the end of your lease, um, you know, at 3% um, or or 1.5 market rate. Um, And it would also ensure that um, landlords can only um, evict if they have a good cause or a good reason to. Um, So not simply just to, you know, folks out so they could renovate and and, and hike up the price. Um, so I think, you know, we're really focused right now in a housing crisis on keeping as many people in their homes as possible while also trying to address the homelessness crisis we have in the city. I've heard a lot about housing supply and I'm someone who is uh, coming from a data background. I am data driven. Um, I, I very much care about, you know, academic independent studies and what that data will show. But The truth is there are no studies that, Prove definitively either way that, um, you know, that if we increase suddenly, you know, build a bunch of new housing, that it would decrease the price of rent. There is no study that actually proves that. There are some that say yes, but also some that say no. So there's no definitive take on this. So what we have instead, and where I, um, you know, am always guided is by a more nuanced approach that looks at, so again, going back to innovation queens, individual developments and what the the local community wants and needs. So in the case of Innovation Queens, it was a very clear, resounding no from Astoria residents who saw a billionaire-backed billion-dollar project and said that the crisis of that development, that, you know, having 26 or 27 story buildings, multiple of those buildings in the immediate rent burden neighborhood is not what they needed. And that they were not getting enough um, deeply affordable housing for giving land um, to these developers. So, you know, we are always guided first by the community. And I also would say that you know, what the numbers do show based on the last census is that in the city, we have over a hundred, so we have 92,000 homeless New Yorkers, but over a hundred thousand empty units. The vast majority of those units are over the price of uh, $2,500. So when you go under $2,500, you actually have, you know, in the single percentile of available units, we don't have a, um, you know, a, a necessarily supply crisis. What we do have is an affordability crisis um, because we, it's very clear that if the rents are affordable, then they then those units are occupied. But the units that sit empty are ones that are unaffordable for New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. So we need to redefine what we see as truly and deeply affordable housing. And we know that the current, and this is coming as someone who served on, on their community board, and I saw this again and again, the current formula for what we consider for the average median income um, is not rep- really representative of New Yorkers and what they earn today. And so, even when a building is built and they take the tax incentive, the 421A program, which our campaign, you know, was very clear that we um, do not believe that is a good program, or it's it's new 485W, um, which is you know basically same thing, different name. Um, that those small percentage of affordable units are actually still too high, right? Still unaffordable and unattainable. So we need to, again, look at, what affordability means, how it's calculated, mm-hmm. and figure out ways to keep people in their home while driving down the cost of current units so that people can afford them. And we don't have so many empty units um, or more empty units than homeless New Yorkers.
0: I think, I think one thing you're getting at seems to be this question of um actually where the where the two things meet, which is the supply of affordable units, right? Is how do you how do you increase the supply of those affordable units? Because as we've seen in the most recent studies from the city's housing department, you know, the vacancy rate in uh, deeply affordable apartments is like one and a half percent. I mean, it's basically every single apartment as you're getting at is, is taken while there are many more vacancies at the upper end, the, the, um, you know the the rub there becomes what um, you know what incentives and subsidies are in place to you know to incentivize the the building of those more affordable units, and that's that seems to be where I don't see you know a clear cut solution from pretty much anybody. You know there there's um, you know there's proposals out there, obviously of combining you know a new version of 421A with some additional subsidies, and you know trying to get to some magic formula but i think there's some real questions about um you know how to really vastly increase that supply of of uh of the deeply affordable housing um and so that 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 remains the sort of elusive plan that i'm i'm interested in um
1: yeah i think that i think that makes sense obviously um there are housing advocates that have been doing this work for decades and organizations that have been very clear that we can you know with any new development demand that all the units are deeply and truly affordable why is it that when a new development is proposed we're in these programs we're only settling for a small percentile of you know the total units why can't all of them be affordable why is the implication that only some are affordable does it mean the rest are unaffordable and then who are who are we really looking to bring into neighborhoods right Mm -hmm. um in those other units so i think like for us, housing is a human right. What I've seen um, and what this campaign was centered on is people over profit. And the real problem is that we have large corporate landlords looking to maximize their profit and are willing to sit on vacant units um, for long periods of time if it means that eventually they get the price that maximizes their profit. So we do have to push back against those large corporate developers, and we need to continue to work with the people who have been doing this work for decades and and um, have been leading the housing justice movement. I'm as an elected someone who is looking to amplify um, those folks, not, not looking to be the, you know, uh, the person who says that I have the all the answers or the silver bullet. No, it's it's looking at the people who did the work in amplifying their efforts um, that mm-hmm. have been demanding tr- again for every unit, deeply and truly affordable. And we do not stop until we get that, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, a lot a lot more for us to discuss there, but we'll we, we won't make it a housing only discussion here. Um so let let me ask you about um talk how how you talk about um socialism, democratic socialism when you're campaigning for um you know a seat in the in the state legislature in the state senate and especially when you talk to um people in longtime communities in Queens and Brooklyn, especially here as you're running in and and you talk to people who are, um, as you mentioned yourself, you know, family members or recent immigrants, people from uh, Asian backgrounds, Latino backgrounds, where sometimes the term socialism is equated with suffering, dictatorship, uh, other negative sentiments, and you have to um, sort of get beyond the initial pushback on terminology and outline what your vision of socialism and democratic socialism is? How how, how do you have those conversations? How did that go on the campaign trail? If, if there were
1: examples of yeah. that. So, you know, I think there has been a lot of, <laughs> a lot of red scaring, right. Mm-hmm. in and right media. And we saw this actually right after our primary victory where Fox news immediately picked up our win and used it as a tool to, you know, continue to spread disinformation about socialism versus democratic socialism. Um, you know, they point to countries that are, you know, not um, democratic socialist um, or they're communist or they're dictatorships and try to complete that. But we're really talking about our social democracies, like many European countries having socialized um, healthcare system, like in Canada and, um, and also ensuring that we're building a movement of, of again, um, everyday New Yorkers, black, brown, immigrant that is working towards building a society that works for the most marginalized and vulnerable of us. And that's a message that resonates with everyone. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, we have a lot of red scaring and disinformation. Um, and but on the other, when you get to the heart of what We believe as democratic socialists, it actually is a message that um, a lot of people believe in. And we found a lot of success at the doors because when I say, you know, as someone who worked for Many Democrats I've worked for, uh, you know, I mentioned Obama and Senator Schumer. What made me a Democratic socialist is because there is a clear set of values and morals. I do not know what it means anymore to be a Democrat, but I know what it means to be a Democratic socialist. And that means fighting for healthcare for all, housing for all, action on climate, on ensuring that we are um, creating a compassionate and empathetic society that. Um, reforms our criminal justice system um, and seeks to abolish ICE, right? All of these very clear set of values. And these are the things that when we organize as democratic socialists across organizations and across groups, like this campaign did, we unified the left, right? Um, We had over 17 endorsements from electeds that were both democratic socialists, but also folks were across the, the democratic left. We had the endorsement of the Working Families Party, um, you know, large advocacy groups like New York Communities for Change. Um, we had movement organizations like the Sunrise Movement. We had them over 50 uh, elected union as well, endorsements and organization endorsements. So when you build a large coalition um, and, you know, including, again, democratic socialists, what we're really doing is creating a winning coalition that will eventually deliver on the demands for a more dignified life and the clear set of values that I just laid out. And that is why the right is so scared. That is what makes democratic socialism effective and why we won in this district because we built the largest coalition. um, But also, you know, helps when we do that, when we collectively build power, helps balance that narrative of, you know, red scaring that we're seeing on the right.
0: Whether it's, um, you know, Democrats of of different shades in charge, um, we seem to have a lot of problems with how government is run in New York State and New York City. Um, There's there's a lot of uh, sort of questions about service delivery. There's a a lot of questions around uh, whether programs are just simply you know, run well and actually, uh, held accountable, evaluated, uh, getting to where the deepest need is a whole host of questions. And I'm sure one of the things, or if not, I'll, I'll just ask you here, you know, one of the things that comes up in questions around, um, uh, democratic socialism and sort of the vision, uh, that you just outlined and comparison to, you know, programs in Canada or, uh, Uh, socialist democracies in Europe is people say New York government doesn't even doesn't work right now in the stuff that we have it doing. And you want to give it more responsibility. How do you, uh, how do you address sort of questions about how you would simultaneously pursue this policy platform, but also sort of become a member of the legislature who really tries to get at how government performs. You know, there's a lot of questions about the New York state legislature and oversight of how the executive branch of government really institutes the laws, implements the laws, executes the laws, whether programs are actually being run well. We saw all sorts of problems with how money was getting out the door in the pandemic, for example, Uh, oversight of housing laws that, you know, you name it. Um, how, How do you think about making sure that as you want to expand government, you also make sure government is working well for the people that it's supposed to help?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the pandemic, because I think that's a really good use case. I think the assumption is that government is not able to deliver on these things. And so we often seek public-private partnerships. In the case of the pandemic, we um, partnered with a lot of private companies to disseminate uh, as many vaccines as possible. And we saw that those uh, private companies gave subpar service in the same way that um, we see large monopolies like Con Edison, a Private company using public infrastructure to charge us the highest, and continue to rate hike up our con Ed prices, our our you know bills for energy at a time where New Yorkers are already struggling, um, and have has no public oversight, right? And just to maximize their profit, we see this. I mentioned internet companies that are large monopolies that we partner with, so. Um, You know, clearly when we're dealing with um, public versus private, which is the alternative, this, this current solution also isn't working because those companies are not accountable to the public, there is no transparency, there is very little oversight, and we're funneling our public dollars into private hands, and I don't think that that is the future for us either? I do think that government government needs to do a better job at providing services, and I think that starts with budget justice and funding. Um, and two things I'll mention there is one: for the first time in years, we had a surplus in our last budget in Albany because our Democratic Socialist electeds actually fought to tax the ultra wealthy and won on that, so we had a surplus in our budget. But we didn't see that money trickle down into improving services and programs um, while keeping them transparent and accountable. What we saw was, for example, a billion dollars being used for a Buffalo Bills stadium, which, you know, no offense to Buffalo Bills fans, I I certainly think they're a fine team. I just do not think they need our public dollars in order to Mm -hmm. invest in a stadium when that billion dollars could have been better used to provide services. And I think the second part of that too, is that we have, in Albany, um, a lot of inaction to improve and hold agencies accountable and hold, uh, and really look at how our programs are being executed. Um, you have a lot of, uh, you know, unfortunately what we're seeing special interests in Albany. So if there was was similar um, with our campaign, we have real estate interests and and energy interests. Yes. Go ahead. Mm
0: -hmm. If there was one committee you could chair in the, in the state Senate, what, what would it be?
1: (laughs) Um, probably environment, <laughs> environment <yeah. laughs> just climate uh, being the central sure,
0: issue. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we're in our last couple of yeah. minutes here with Kristen Gonzalez, who recently won the democratic primary in the new 59th state Senate district by a wide margin. That new district is covering parts of three boroughs, including uh, mostly a large stretch of Western Queens and Western Brooklyn, and also a chunk of Manhattan's East side. Thank you for all the time. Last couple of quick questions for you, uh, Kristen. Um Say just just a moment about, um, you know, you won by a hand, handy margin here, but there, you know, were a couple pockets of this new district where um, you didn't do that well, I believe, including some of the NYCHA public housing areas. Uh, are there things you're going to do between now and, and taking office in January to sort of continue to, to do outreach to parts of this new district, especially areas where you weren't particularly successful in the vote. Anything you know that you want to highlight for people to say? Hey, now we're out of this this primary campaign. Again, you did you know exceptionally well, won by a very wide margin, uh, better than I think most people thought you would do, even if they thought you were going to win. Um, but any any thoughts on sort of that next phase of becoming the representative for this district, including areas where you might not have done so well?
1: Right. I am an organizer. That's my background. And that's what we're going to continue to do. This campaign was always the vehicle for organizing around the issues that mattered most to us. So between now and uh, January, we're actually going to be doing more canvassing, um, getting out into all of the neighborhoods, including areas where we didn't do as well, to actually talk about, you know, good cause eviction, talk about the Build Public Renewables Act, which is a bill that would give us the right to build renewable energy, uh, wind and solar in New York, um, and so much more. So we really, you know, we're committed to continue organizing. Um, I would also say that, you know, I'm really excited about, this this primary win um because it does show that our movement is growing we won four to one in brooklyn you know two to one in queens um and we made you know headway in manhattan so i think what we're doing is just building on the progress and i'm really optimistic about you know How we'll continue building just in the next couple of years as we deliver. And as, you know, one, I go up to Albany to fight for the things we talked about today, but two, also go up to bring new energy as someone who is younger, someone who is the third Democratic Socialist in the state Senate, and someone who um, believes that we can do better and should do better as a government.
0: Um, last question. You just went through this redistricting process mm-hmm. that, as you indicated, really you know shifted uh, the districts and the plans and and uh, and messed with a lot of people's uh, plans and, and electoral uh, uh, efforts. Um, there's also obviously often a lot of attention on elections and voting in New York, and and I understand these were not you know major. Um, Focus areas: of Your campaign. You've gotten at a lot of a lot of your platform here, and, and folks should, of course, check out your campaign website, which has a lot of your uh, detailed policy plans on it for everything from housing to reproductive justice, uh, education, public safety, uh, some other areas we've mentioned here, especially climate and, and the Build Public Renewables Act that you just got at. But anything on sort of the democracy issues of redistricting or voting or elections that coming out of this process, you know, you are interested in looking at in the legislature or or certain bills that you want to get behind or anything you want to try to do about the redistricting process differently. Um, there's there's a lot of time, so you know, again, no no need to no need to necessarily have an answer on this one right now. But um, but anything on sort of redistricting, voting, elections that coming out of this experience, you know, is is top of mind for you for reform.
1: Yeah, it's just, you know, a mirror between what's happening in New York State and the rest of the country. Our lines were overturned by a right wing court. And we're seeing, you know, the far right be very organized through the courts and through local offices, you know, here in New York, but also across the country. And as a result, you um, Creating undemocratic situations, like the overturning of these lines, but also peeling away our rights. If we look at the Supreme Court as an example, peeling, um, peeling away our right to um, to choose. So I think, honestly, we, I, while I don't have uh, again a silver bullet, I think what we really need to look at is the best way to counter a far-right court um, and to ensure that we are pushing back against the larger far-right movement across the country is by continuing to hyper-locally organize and create a very organized um, movement of our own and the broadest coalition. We did that in this campaign. We organized across the left. We unified the left. We're going to continue to do that um, to ensure that we're improving our courts and our systems and democratic processes. So we don't continue to have undemocratic situations like these in the future, um, but that we're really setting ourselves up for success as a city and we're shifting the power away from just a few in government um, or in any situation and really to the many, right? That's that's the, that's the part of our ultimate goal as a project is to um, you know, create a future that is for all of us. We need to um, create a government that is responsible and responsive to all of us. So I'm really excited to just be committed to that on different
0: levels. yeah. Great. Well, I appreciate you taking all this time to chat um, and congratulations on your win. I look forward to having you back and and we can dig in more on housing and also on climate, which we didn't get to, you know, get into a lot of specifics on, but obviously two of the the biggest issues facing New York and, and things that you were focused on and would, uh, we'll look forward to you taking office in the new year and then, uh, and then chatting a bit more about those issues and more, but thanks for taking all this time.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And if folks are interested, please, please, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. Our um, website is gonzalez 4 G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z-F-O-R-N-Y.com. And I'm really excited to, you know, continue the conversation on all of these important issues as we take them on in Albany.
0: All right. Be well. Thanks for the time.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. (laughs)